Well, brothers and sisters, I would invite you this morning to open God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as you are doing so, let, let's stand. And again, for some of us, this is habit, I understand, but, but it's a good habit. It's like brushing your teeth. You should do it. Uh, but, but, but we do it not just because it's a habit. We stand because God is worthy of our worship and his word is good and true and holy. And so we stand to honor God and to honor his word. I'm going to read in your hearing this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 11. Though I want you to understand, if you've been gathering with us the last couple of weeks, we're going to focus our attention specifically on verses 8 through 11. But I want to pick up the flow of thought in 1 Timothy here. So let us give our ears now to the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please take your seat. If you've ever been to a fair or a carnival, you've no doubt seen those mirrors those mirrors that, that don't accurately reflect who you are. You know the ones I'm talking about? Sometimes they make you look like really super duper tall or, or they make you look like really fat or maybe super duper thin. Whatever it is, you sort of look in this mirror and you know that it sort of has a resemblance of you, but that's not actually how you look, not in real life. You know when, when you look at that image staring back at you that that's, that's not you. Something's off. Something's wonky. It's, it's not right. It's not true. Really, it's a counterfeit. And brothers and sisters, in a lot of ways, that's exactly what was being peddled in Ephesus by the false teachers of Timothy's day. 
You will remember 1 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to the church. And it's a call for Timothy to fight, to fight for the faith, not to fight for a counterfeit, to fight for the true faith. And speaking of these false teachers that infected Ephesus, we discovered last week what marked them out, what made them false. Well, they deviated and they devoted and they distracted. Remember, they deviated from the truth of God's word. And instead, they devoted themselves, verse 4, to myths and endless genealogies. And because they were devoted to that, they distracted God's people from God's gospel. And you will remember that it seems this was all born out of an abuse of God's law. The false teachers, they, verse 7, they desired to be teachers of the law. But notice what Paul says in verse 7. Without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So this all stems, it would seem, from a misuse and an abuse of God's law. But this raises the question. If they've been misusing God's law, what is its proper use. Christian, how ought we to think of and use and apply God's law? And that's going to be the question before us this morning. Now, when it comes to God's law and how we ought to think about it, the first thing that Paul would have us to see is that the law is good. Paul wants us to see the absolute, intrinsic, inherent goodness of God's law. That's how verse 8 begins, right? Now we know, verse 8, that the law is good. You see, we know this, Paul says. We know it. This is, this is basic Christianity. This is training wheels. This is what the church affirms. That's why verse 8 begins, now We know, not I know. This isn't some little secret thing that just Paul knows about. This is the consensus of the church. The law is good. And the law is good, and we really need to to hear this and remind ourselves of this and believe this and lean into this. The law is good because it is first and foremost a reflection of God himself, right? The law is a reflection of God's righteousness and his character. The law of God reveals to us the mind and will of God. God's law, it's like a mirror. It tells us who and what God is like. So again, Paul affirms in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good. And church, we know this because this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. That is to say, God's Word tells us that God's law is good. For example, Psalm 19.7 says this, For the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's law isn't some trivial or unimportant thing, but the psalmist declares it is perfect. 
Or you might consider Psalm 119, an extended meditation on the very goodness of God's law. Let me give you just a sampling. And as I do, I would encourage each and every one of you to spend your Lord's Day afternoon reading through Psalm 119. But for now, just listen to a couple of passages from Psalm 119. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Still speaking of the law, the psalmist erupts in verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. They are sweeter than honey to my mouth. Fast forward to verse 127. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Nor should we think this is just some Old Testament sentiment. As if for some reason, if it's in the Old Testament, it's like automatically bad or has no use or relevance to us today. Nonsense. Listen to what Paul tells the Christians in Rome. Romans 7.12. Romans 7.12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You hear that? The law of God is holy and righteous and good. Or if you wanted to shorten it up the way Paul does here in 1 Timothy 1.8, now we know that the law is good. But in all of this church, we have to recognize that there is a caveat, isn't there? And that is this. The law must be used lawfully. Verse 8 again, now we know that the law is good if, there's a condition, if one uses it lawfully. So, and the false teachers of Timothy's day were a great example of this, there is a way to use the law of God unlawfully. There's a way to zig when you're supposed to zag. There's a way to abuse the intrinsic goodness of the law. But we have to be careful here. We can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. We can't just say, well, there's a danger here, so chuck the law. No. We must use the law lawfully, to which I hope we can all say, amen. But that begs the question, doesn't it? How do we do that? What does it mean? What does it look like to use the law lawfully? And we're going to flesh this out in a moment more fully, but for now, let's content ourselves with this. To use the law lawfully, we must use it the way God intends. So the irrigation canal has water in it, but it is not designed for you to bathe in. So if you go this afternoon and you grab a bar of soap and you try and take a shower in the irrigation canal, you will be using it unlawfully. That's not what it was designed for. That's not his intention. Similarly, for the law to be used lawfully, here's the key now, it must be used in accord with the purposes for which God gave it. Now, before we unpack that, that is the lawful use of the law, 
I do want to spend a couple of moments and unpack some unlawful uses of the law. In other words, what are some of the wrong ways to use the law? What might the false teachers of Timothy's day, what might they have been tempted to do with the law? And in that vein, how might we be tempted today to use the law unlawfully? Well, at the end of the day, there are two ways, recognize I'm speaking generally here, there are two ways for the law to be used unlawfully. They are these. You've got lawlessness and you've got legalism. Lawlessness and legalism. That's how you pervert, Romans seven twelve, the holiness and righteousness and goodness of the law. You use God's law to promote either lawlessness or legalism. So what do these things mean? Well, lawlessness is the idea that the law of God has no place, no authority, no relevance in the Christian life. Sometimes this goes by the name antinomianism, literally against law. But this morning, we'll just use the word lawlessness. And you see this idea alluded to in Romans 6.1. You will remember that Paul asks rhetorically, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer that comes back is, by no means. What Romans 6 teaches us is that grace, dear church, does not mean lawlessness. Grace is not a license for sin. The gospel doesn't, by definition, just chuck the law. Or if I can put it this way, don't fall into the trap of thinking that the New Testament is against the Old Testament. That's not the case. We see this same impulse toward lawlessness among the Gnostics that plagued the early church. Their view of the world... And the idea that the world is material and physical. And their view was such that anything that was material or physical, it was by definition evil. It was bad. It was to be disposed of. That worldview that the Gnostics shared, it led them to pretty much doing whatever they want with their material physical bodies. The thinking went like this. It, the body is a prison house for my soul. One day I'm going to leave it. My body will return to the dust. It's garbage. Ergo, I can pretty much do whatever I want with my body right now because it's tr- destined for the trash heap anyway. And that included all manner of sin. You also see this bent toward lawlessness in the Reformation era among the radical Anabaptists. They saw no allegiance to the law of God. They reasoned like this. Well, why do we need the law of God when we have the Spirit of God? Which is why Luther and Calvin both referred to these radical Anabaptists as fanatics. Luther joked and chided them that they didn't just receive the Holy Spirit, but they swallowed the dove, feathers and all. Gotta love Luther. 
Finally, you see some similar thinking in some of the dispensationalism of the 20th century. There were generations of Christians who so pitted the law against grace that for many, the law was no longer applicable. In many cases, the whole Old Testament seemed to be unnecessary, with the exception, of course, of the Proverbs and the Psalms. I don't know how they made it through. But, but really, the Old Testament it sort of had a shelf life. It had an expiration date. It didn't really have anything to say to the church. Now, Christians, that's one way to malign God's law. It's just lawlessness. The other, which is the opposite, is legalism. What is legalism, you ask? For simplicity's sake, legalism is the idea that by keeping the law, you can earn heaven. You can merit forgiveness. You, you, you can deserve justification by your checking all the right boxes and doing what you're supposed to do. You might think of the Pharisees of Christ's day. Did our Lord not routinely clash with them over this very idea? What did they do? But they added to the law of God their own laws, and they thought by adherence to their man-made laws that they were somehow more righteous than other people. Pelagius, Augustine's theological sparring partner in the 5th century, he was of the same brand. Pelagius actually viewed all of us as little atoms being put back in the garden. I don't mean A-T-O-M-S, I mean A-D-A-M, like Adam and Eve. He thought all of us as little atoms, and that we had the ability in and of ourselves, by sheer willpower, to obey God. For Pelagius, grace was superfluous. Fast forward to the 20th century because you see some strands of it there too. At the risk of overgeneralizing, much of the fundamentalism of the 20th century was a reaction to the theological liberalism of the 20th century. But unfortunately, what the fundamentalists did, like the Pharisees before them, is all of a sudden they felt the need to erect these man-made laws. So some of you are old enough, you, you remember some of these man-made laws. See if you can finish it with me. Here's a law that some of you grew up with. Thou shalt not dance, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. I'm a boy, it was girls who do. I'm sorry, I'm a man, not a boy. You can tell by my baby blue sweater. Here's what we need to see, though. At the end of the day, both lawlessness and legalism whether we're talking ancient or modern, both are dangerous departures from the truth of God's word. And here's what makes them dangerous. When you peel back all of the layers, when you get down to the heart of it, here's what makes them dangerous. Are you ready? Both lawlessness and legalism, where does it put the accent? Puts it on you and not on Christ. That's how you know something's wonky because it ends up being about you. James Henley Thornwell, he was a 19th century Presbyterian minister. He put this whole thing quite eloquently. He said this, The gospel, like its blessed master, is always crucified between two thieves, 
legalists of all sorts on the one hand, and antinomians on the other. The former robbing the Savior of the glory of his work for us, and the other robbing him of the glory of his work within us. So both lawlessness and legalism, they are twin sisters that rise from the pit of hell. They are, to draw upon the language of 1 Timothy 1.8, unlawful uses of God's law. To which you say, that's good, but, 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 but where do we go from here? What are the lawful uses of God's law? Because Paul says in verse 8, if one uses it lawfully. So how do we do that? Well, historically Reformed theology has answered that question in three ways. To use the law lawfully, we must see that it has a condemning, a civil, and a Christian function. Condemning, civil, and Christian. In terms of its condemning function, the law of God very quickly exposes our sin, doesn't it? This is how Romans 3.20 puts it. Cuts right to the chase. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Something very similar is said in Romans chapter 7. Paul tells us, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So you might think of it this way. The law is like an x-ray machine. It reveals what's truly going on inside of us. You see, we might fool ourselves. We might be tempted to think, we're pretty good people. We're decent human beings. We've got it all figured out. I'm not an axe murderer. I don't cheat on my taxes. I haven't kicked my dog this week. I'm a good guy. But the law of God exposes us for who we are. As Martin Luther said, the law is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. And crush us, it does. It's for this reason, church, that the law is absolutely necessary in our evangelism. You have to understand, there is no good news without bad news. Yes, the gospel gives life. But the law first reveals that we are dead. And that's because what the law does, according to its condemning function, is it makes demands. It tells us what to do. It thunders from heaven. It obligates this. And we can't do it. It's true, the gospel is the remedy. But you have to understand that the law is what diagnoses our disease. As Robert Flockhart, the Edinburgh street preacher from the mid-1800s said, it is of no use trying to sew with the silken thread of the gospel unless we pierce away for it with the sharp needle of the law. So the law condemns, and the law drives us to Christ. That's one lawful use of the law. The other is its civil function. That is to say, the law is used to restrain evildoers. You see this throughout Scripture, but perhaps the most well-known example is in Romans 13. 
In speaking to the civil magistrate, Paul calls them God's servant, literally God's deacon. And as God's servant, the civil magistrate is the one who, Romans 13, 4, carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, on the evil person. So maybe think of it this way. What God does through the civil use of the law is keep people in line. Now it's true, please hear this, only the Holy Spirit can regenerate a heart. Never the law. But the law does serve to restrain the evil intentions of fallen man. As a brother of mine puts it, it can put a cog in the wheel of man's sinful thoughts. And I I think a moment's sort of reflection will reveal how true this is. How much we understand this. I don't imagine that any of you here want to live in a society without laws. At least not if there are other sinful human beings inhabiting this magical society. As a test case, think of what happened a few years ago up in Seattle with the whole Chaz thing. Right? When there are no consequences for sin and crime, chaos ensues. But again, the civil use of God's law helps curb sin and crime. Finally, there is the third use of the law, and that is its Christian use. In other words, the law of God reveals to us Christians how we ought to love and live. As the 1689 London Baptist Confession puts it, God's law is a rule of life that informs the Christian of the will of God and their duty. Now, to be clear, it's not, I repeat not, I repeat not, a means of justification or going to heaven or anything like that. But the law does show the person who is already a Christian the path that he ought to walk as he seeks to obey Christ. Our Lord himself tells us, if you love me, you will follow your heart. No, don't follow your heart. Your heart's a pit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We are, Galatians 6.2, to fulfill the law of Christ. And so as Kevin DeYoung has said, the law can and should be urged upon true believers. Not to condemn them, but to correct and promote Christ-likeness. So, to give you a sense of how all of this sort of works and gets fleshed out, let's use murder now as sort of a test case for how these three uses of the law work, okay? When you're thinking about murder, the law of God condemns each and every one of us, not just because the physical act of murder is sin, though it is, but also because all of our thoughts of hatred toward those around us is also sin, isn't it? And we know that no murderer, no sinner will inherit eternal life. So if you have ever physically murdered somebody, or if you have ever had an evil, vindictive, mischievous, malice thought towards somebody, you have broken God's law. You are a murderer. So we are condemned 
by God's law. This same law also has a civil function. Because such sinful acts have steep consequences, many, I assume all of you, are deterred from doing in action what you have done already in attitude. That is to say, having such laws against murder and a magistrate that punishes murder, it makes for a better society. Again, it doesn't regenerate anybody here, but it does mean that we can all go to the grocery store with a fair amount of peace of mind that we're not going to get brutally murdered if we cut in line. And then, as those who have felt the sting of God's law and have been brought to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, there is a Christian use of the law. Now, with our sins being forgiven and, and with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, now the law, you shall not murder, now it is a law that teaches us how to love our neighbor and love God. We, we recognize that God has given us life and, and Christ has given us eternal life through his shed blood. And as his people, then, we are to be a people who seek to promote love and life and peace not hatred and death and war. So church, it is these three, this condemning and civil and Christian uses, this is how we use the law of God, end of verse 8, lawfully. But again, it seems that the false teachers were using the law unlawfully. And here's the rub. It seems that the false teachers were convinced that the law was actually a means of obtaining one's own righteousness. They were, actually, they were actually under the delusion that if they kept the law, that they would go to heaven. To put it down and dirty, they believed that if they kept God's well, they believed that they could keep law, God's law. They believed that they had kept God's law. And they believe that because of their good works of keeping God's law, they would go to heaven. But Paul is very quick to correct them, isn't he? He says, no. He says, verse 9, no, the law is not, it's not, it's not laid down for the just. But for who? Paul says, notice this, for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinner, for the unholy and profane for those who strike fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You see what Paul is saying specifically in verse 9? The law is not for the just. The law is for the lawless and the disobedient. The lawless and disobedient. To say it another way, the law was not designed by God to make you righteous. There's only one way for you to be made righteous, and that is through Christ. Not only can the law not do that, the law won't do that. The law can't justify. Only Christ, who is truly just, can justify you. And that only happens by Christ imputing to you His righteousness, which makes you righteous. And that only happens by grace alone, through faith alone, not the law. The law was not made for the just, is what Paul is saying. 
Now, as we look at this list of vices in verses 9 and 10, you may have noticed that it sounds somewhat familiar. And that's because it's pretty much the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. If you look toward the end of verse 9, that whole idea becomes a bit more apparent. Look at the end of verse 9. We read, those who strike their fathers and mothers. And that no doubt refers to a breach of the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is you shall love uh, your father and your mother. And so from there, you can begin to count forward from the end of verse 9 and see how Paul is talking about the second table of the law, that part of the Ten Commandments that addresses you and I's horizontal relationships. So case in point, the mention of murderers at the end of verse 9 speaks to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Then in verse 10, with the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality, you have clear reference to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Continuing on, the eighth commandment is you shall not steal. And the word that Paul uses there in verse 10, what he forbids is enslavers. And the specific word is a compound word in the Greek. It brings together the word for men, and then it also uses a verb that means to bind or to tie the feet. So the term refers to someone who forcibly or coercively binds or ties the feet of men. Now, now today, you and I would just call this kidnapping. And that's exactly what Paul is referring to here. He's, he's using kidnapping, just like in the previous clause about men who practice some homosexuality. He's using these heightened cases to really accent the commandment. So thou shalt not steal. What, what's the worst form of, of stealing there could be? Man-stealing, kidnapping. That brings us to those two words there in the middle of verse 10. Liars and perjurers. Here Paul is no doubt alluding to the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. That then leads the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. But you will quickly discover its absence here in 1 Timothy 1. Why is that? Why does Paul stop, it would appear, at the ninth commandment? And there are two ways to explain its apparent absence. One view is that it is covered there at the end of verse 10 with that phrase, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's, that's one possibility. The other is to see that these sins, the fifth through the ninth commandments, they're all outward and physical and objective. You can put them on a scale, right? While covetousness is not like that. So the other view is that Paul perhaps has intentionally left off the 10th commandment because what he wants to do here is emphasize the outward and tangible evidences of sin. One that, ones that go merely beyond thought and desire to actually word and deed. Now, assuming that we have rightly identified the second table of the law here in 1 Timothy 1, what about the first table of the law? It seems apparent that Paul is concerned with our horizontal relationships with one another and how the law works. But what about the first table of the law, the first four commandments, which address our vertical relationship with the Lord? 
Does Paul have that in mind here? And I think that he actually does. So when you go back to verse 9 and you look at the fifth commandment, you were working forward. I'm not trying to lose you here. Now work backward from the fifth commandment, from um, the end of verse 9, those who strike their fathers and mothers. If you work backward, what you have is the profane. Well, the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And since Paul is speaking negatively here, to violate the fourth commandment, what's the opposite of keeping it holy? What would that be? It would be to profane it. Similarly, and still working backwards, you have those who are unholy. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Or to say it another way, we are to treat God's name as holy. This is why Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be your name. The second commandment forbids making for yourself a carved image. And while the word there in verse 9, sinners, you see it, while it has a broad range of meaning, it is fascinating to note that it is used more specifically of Gentiles who fail to keep the law because of their idolatry. And that just leaves the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And that brings us, if we're still working backwards in 1 Timothy 1, to the word ungodly, a word which means godless or impious. And I would just ask you, how else would you describe a person who violates the first commandment except as one who is ungodly? So in terms of 1 Timothy's exposition of the Ten Commandments, we are still left with two terms unaccounted for. Verse 9 again, this time going from the beginning, bear with me. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So how do these two fit in? How How are we to understand these two words? Well, assuming that we are correct up to this point, it would seem that these two words sort of function as something of an introduction. They reveal the nature of rebellion that is latent in the unregenerate heart. In Adam, we could say, we are all born lawless and disobedient. And then our lawlessness and our disobedience, it manifests itself in our breaching of God's moral law. So Paul's point then, and hear me well, is that you, I, nobody will be justified by law. You will not ever be saved by the law. Sure, it's true, the law has a civil function. And if you are a Christian, the law guides you with respect to how you ought to love God and how you ought to love your neighbor. But we have to understand, lest we fall into the trap of the false teachers, the law will never save you. It can't. The law will only ever condemn you. That is Paul's point. It was not made for the just, but for the unjust. 
What the law does is it curbs our evil and it condemns us. You, what's that stuff that they put in corpses to preserve them for the funeral? What's that stuff called? Embalming fluid? Is that what it is? Formaldehyde? Think of it this way. That might help you look nice for your open casket. But do you know what will happen if you pump yourself full of that stuff this afternoon? It'll kill you. That's what the law does. That's what the law is. The law doesn't give life. Yes, Romans 7.12, the law is holy and righteous and good. Yes, 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good. That stuff is all true, but the law cannot give life to dead sinners like us. Only Christ can. And to be more specific, only his shed blood, only the gospel. Only Christ, perfectly keeping the law we broke and gifting his righteousness to us by grace alone through faith alone. That is the only righteousness that will cover our sins on that day. It is only his death on the cross. It's only his death on that cross because on that cross he dies the death that we deserve, not for some nebulous sin, but for our law breaking. And it's only his resurrection that gives us new life. So every time we talk about the law, we have to say this look to Christ for your life, not to the law. All the law will do is only further reveal that you're a corpse. That's what the formaldehyde will do. That's what the embalming fluid will do. It does not give you life. What it does is it gives you the appearance of life for a couple of hours on that Saturday afternoon so your loved ones can have closure with you. But it does not give life. And too many people treat the law that way. They treat it like embalming fluid and they pump it in themselves and they think, I'm alive. And they keel over. Life is found in Christ. In Christ alone. And this, of course, is what Paul is getting at there in verses 10 and 11. You see the contrast, right? There is, end of verse 10, sound doctrine. And this is why I read in your hearing from verse 1 through verse 11. Because the sound doctrine of verse 10 is set up against the different doctrine of verse 3. Right? You see verse 3, different doctrine. Verse 10, sound doctrine. So what distinguishes them? What separates them? Well, given the context of 1 Timothy 1, the different doctrine of verse 3 is the doctrine, it's the teaching that, again, misuses and abuses God's law. The different doctrine says, you can be made right by your law-keeping, by your own efforts, by your own works and will, by your own attitudes and actions. The different doctrine, it preaches to each and every one of us. Look into the mirror. Look to self. It adopts the Home Depot motto, doesn't it? You can do it. We can help. No, you can't. No, you can't. That is different doctrine. But sound doctrine, it protests. What is the sound doctrine? It is, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Sound doctrine has its own message. And it says, you can only be made right by Christ's law-keeping. 
His efforts, his works, his will, his attitudes, his actions. The gospel preaches, don't look in the mirror, but look to the cross. Don't look to, the, to yourself, look to the Savior. Cease posting your resume and instead run to your Redeemer. It says, look away from the law and look to your Lord. I should also add, this is why it is referred to in verse 10 as sound doctrine and not just doctrine. And that's because the word sound, it is a medical term meaning healthy or wholesome. It's the idea that this doctrine, it brings health. It brings life. But what does the different doctrine of verse 3 bring? Well, in 2 Timothy 2.17, 2 Timothy 2.17, Paul refers to this different doctrine as, I love how the ESV renders it, gangrene. So again, Sound doctrine is that which points you and I to Christ, his gospel, his sufficiency, his works, his blood, his perfection, how Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And it's that doctrine, it's that teaching, it's that good news that gives grace to your soul like balm to a wound. But pseudo-gospels, bootleg Christs, counterfeit Christianity that will ruin and wreck you. Just as gangrene does to your skin, so this different doctrine will turn your soul greenish black and eventually it will kill you. So Christian, you remember those carnival mirrors? The ones that deceive? That's what counterfeit Christianity does. We look into this mirror, and what we behold is untrue. It's a lie. Sure, we might look like really tall or, or wavy or, or super thin, but we know that's not reality. Well, friends, the same is true if we are looking to anyone or anything other than Christ for our standing before God. The law won't fix us. The law won't make us good. It won't fit us for heaven. It can't take away your sins. It can't live for you. It can't die for you. It can't rise from the dead for you. can't do any of that. It's no different than walking away from that carnival mirror and actually thinking that you are 12 feet tall and 6 inches wide. It's a facade. It's a facade. Look to Christ. Rest in Him. That's where truth is found. Brothers and sisters, that is where life is found. It's found in Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, thanking you for the good news of the gospel, thanking you that while we in and of ourselves are lawbreakers, that you have sent your Son, that you have given one who has perfectly fulfilled, has perfectly kept, obeyed the law that we have broke. And Lord, you know our temptations. You know that our hearts are idle idle pumping factories. You know that we are prone toward lawlessness or prone toward legalism. You you know that we are bent in such a way to, to want to 
post our resume and to, and to keep this list here and to not do these things over there and to think that, that by doing this or that or not doing this or that, that, that we have somehow got in your good graces or something like that. We pray that you would crush that idea, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, such that we would rely entirely upon Christ, your Son and our Savior. It's in his name that we would ask you to do such things. And all of God's people said, Amen.